0: Welcome to episode 32 of Control the Controllables. Sounds a bit strange saying that, we're, we're fast approaching 50. Um, another fantastic episode. Um, over the last 20 years, Great Britain have had technically nine male ATP Top 100 players. Um, of those, Of those nine, probably half of them were born, raised... And, and came through, I guess, the British tennis system. Um, one of those is Martin Lee, who is our guest today. Uh, Martin has a great story to tell. He talks about the setbacks that he received when he was younger, how he then made it to World Junior number 1, and then had another few setbacks before making it into the world's top 100, which is the holy grail of our sport. Now, there's some amazing advice in there. Listen out for the advice that his dad gave him age 13 and then the impact that that had throughout his life. It comes out throughout the podcast. Martin's very lucky to have an amazing, wise father who who said the right thing to him at the right time and and shows the impact of, of good, clear and empathetic Communication great message for for parents for players and and also for coaches as well. the impact that that can have on someone 's life at such a young age. Uh, Martin speaks fantastically I know you're going to enjoy it if you don't get to the end and listen to me at the end. I just want to grab you at the start to say a big thank you to you all for the support, overwhelmed with the messages of support for the for the podcast, which is great we 're all in this for the right reasons please keep sharing, rate it, review it on the iTunes app and and help get it out into into the right hands so people can pick up these great messages. That's enough from me. Over to Martin Lee. So Martin Lee, welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, no, fine. Thanks, Keanu. Uh, Yeah, it's been a tricky sort of four or five months, but hopefully we're getting out the other side.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, just a quick one, I guess, for the listeners, Marty. Anyone listening, Martin was a, was a former world junior number one. Um, I was living with him at the time at Bisham Abbey and saw how incredible that he was and all of his achievements that he had. Um, he won junior Wimbledon doubles. He then reached 94 in the world ATP and then has gone on to have a very successful coaching career where himself and the Delgado brothers on on living tennis down at bisham abbey um and that's i guess where we'll start marty You, you mentioned four or five tough months how how's it been for you guys the academy in this kind of crazy crazy time
1: uh it's been very difficult really it's uh it was something that came out of the blue um we were just about finishing our sort of second term we had one more term to go of our sort of school uh, timetable and then it sort of just stopped overnight uh, and then we were in lockdown for I think sort of 10, 11, 12 weeks. We're still not back on site um, the centre is still not open but hopefully in the next sort of couple of weeks we we can start getting back on site and, and starting start again with some sort of lessons and sort of play it by ear. And what,
0: what does that mean for, obviously, uh, you're very similar to us in terms of being a, being a tennis academy that are looking after, you know, high end players from, from different ages. So I'm pretty familiar with that as a business model, you know, and I think I'm sure we've gone through some of the similar, similar difficulties. What, what are some of the realities of what it means to a tennis academy that you would share with our, our listeners?
1: Well, the reality is that an income that you need to sort of pay all your coaches and, and, and pay the rent and, and, and pay all your sort of monthly bills uh, has sort of stopped overnight. Yeah. Uh, we, we were lucky enough that uh, Sporting and on, on, on our site uh, stopped our rent when we weren't on there. Uh, and then all our coaches, sort of their work stopped overnight yeah. until we can get back on. The last sort of four or five weeks, we've managed to get a few sort of courts here and there that we've done some individual lessons yep. and to sort of keep the, keep the coaches sort of busy, busier and, and getting a few lessons in. But it's sort of until we can get back on site and have the accommodation and, and the food and the gym and everything, we're, we're in a bit of limbo. So in our heads, we're probably starting again in, in September. And, and for those listening, that's Living Tennis, there.
0: They, they're based out of Bisham Abbey, which is one of the national sports centres. You would have heard on other podcasts, you know, myself, James Trotman, Lee Child, Ian Barclay, you know, who, who was our coach when we were there. Um, how is it being there now? I know you've been there a few years, but obviously after what we went through there as players and as youngsters, what's it like being on the other side? That must be weird. That would, that
1: would weird me out. Um, it it is a sort of the thing is I I never really left um, I I went to Bisham as a as a sort of thirteen fourteen year old boy and um, I was there for sort of probably six six years yeah then then sort of left there but I was always in the area I, I had a flat that I bought when I was sort of eighteen nineteen yeah which is sort of five miles away and then. After my tennis career finished, I I came back and started coaching from Bisham Abbey. So I've, I've sort of never really left it, it, it my home, really.
0: So yeah, I mean, you, you're part you're part of the furniture. There's going to be a in 50 years' time, a hundred years' time, there might be a painting you and Lady Hobie, you know, in the in the Great Hall. Is Lady Hobie still there? Um, the rumours
1: are that she is. I've never seen the ghost, but there, have, there has been a lot of people that say they've seen it or, or things that have gone on. But uh, yeah, it, it is meant to be haunted in some way, but I, I've never seen it. And, and going
0: to your tennis, obviously, I was going through it in my head, Marty. I was trying to call male players, British players that have been top 100 in the world in the last 20 years. There's not many. I know there's currently four four of them. Um, obviously, Tim, Greg, um, anybody else? Am I missing anybody? Uh, well, there's probably sort of maybe J- Jeremy Bates as well. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, you're, come on, he's an old fart. Jeremy's, come on, he's he's way past it. I'm talking about the last 20 years. Jeremy must have been, what, 25, 30 years ago now almost, 25 Yeah, years. so
1: after... It was sort of, yeah, there was Greg, and there was Tim, and then it was sort of myself, um, and then the, the, the new lot that have come on the scene in the last sort of 10 years, really.
0: Yeah, so if we're talking seven or eight, seven or eight stories in the whole of the UK, all of those people that play tennis, it's incredible... Of what you achieved and you got to this kind of glorious or what people perceive and I'd like to get into that later in the podcast if it really is this golden bridge that people like to talk about how, how did tennis start for you because I know
1: your dad was a tennis coach wasn't he yeah my dad was a tennis coach he's still a tennis coach now he's uh, he's over over 17 he's still sort of coaching three or four days a week with his performance players down at uh down at his club, so he's he's still still going. Um, yeah, it start it started for me. Um, we were born. I was born in in, in London, in Dulwich. And my dad was a sort of tennis coach at one of the sort of local clubs there. Um, and then at the age of five, uh, my parents decided they were going to sort of leave London and, and move down to. Um, Worthing um, which is sort of on the south south coast uh, in between sort of Littlehampton and and Brighton so he he took a job at a tennis club down there uh, Amring on sea tennis club Um, and he was coaching a lot um, because he had to earn a living so he would just take me down to tennis club and I would just sort of play with whoever I could play with or or the wall Um, the difficult thing is I remember is that you could only join the club when you're eight years old, um, yeah. and I was five. So, yeah. um, but I think they changed the rules, uh, and luckily enough, I I could play. And I just remember my dad in between lessons playing a little bit with me, or just arranging anyone for me to play with. Um, yeah. And it was it was just as it was a seven. Seven Court Club, right by the uh, sea. So it was always windy. Um, there was no no access to indoor courts or anything, and I just sort of stayed down the tennis club and played with whoever I could play with. It's such a. I think like I said this is going to be I think episode thirty
0: two of what we've done on the podcast. We've spoken to so many players, and it's unbelievable how many of you guys that have had the success that journeys have started so similar. And 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 almost, um, I think the right word is almost organically. Yeah. You know, your your start to tennis, it's an organic start. It's, you're around lots of people. You're around the sport. You know, you just you're playing tennis with anyone hitting against the wall. Do you think that? Do you think that's missing nowadays? Do you think we see see much of that with the juniors nowadays?
1: Um, I think it's difficult to tell. I, I think there's probably for sure there is some some very good clubs um that have got a very sort of good junior program um it's just getting them involved and getting i went back down to my dad's club and he's not the head coach anymore uh, but he's he's always around and i i took my a couple of my kids down there um, and on a saturday morning and they had about 70 or 80 kids playing and it was fantastic yeah. And uh, and that that was a great sign to see because that's where you can see the talent and, and the ones that, that that might sort of take it on to a, a different level. So I was yeah I was down there till the sort of till the age of thirteen really, um, and I I always knew and my dad knew that we had I had to sort of leave leave Worthing because I'd sort of grown out of the people I was playing with I didn't have access to the indoor courts which once yeah. you get to a certain level uh, especially in, in the UK you, you need the indoor courts to be able to play safely um, and sort of play all year round yeah. uh, so my sort of big memory was um, I was there was a trial Trials weekend down at Bisham Abbey for for the uh, National Tennis School at the time. Okay, and I went down for the trials uh, weekends, Played great. Um, couldn't have played any better uh, all over the weekends, um, Played lots of different drills. Did did a lot of lot of lot of match play. Um, and then at the end of the weekend, they sort of um, sat you down in a room. My parents were there, and we sat there. Um, and they they told me that they didn't think I was ready, and I, I in essence I, I wasn't good enough to, uh, to come to to Bisham Abbey. Yeah. So I'll never yeah. forget it. Uh, we're driving home, um, my my mum, my dad, uh, and me, and I think my sister was there as well. And I was just devastated. I was crying my eyes out the whole way home. I wanted. I, I wanted to be there more than anything because I, I, I wanted to be a tennis player. Um, yeah. And my dad stopped at this fish and chip shop in, in Guildford. Yeah. Uh, and he got me some fish and chips. And he goes, Martin, that's the best thing that could ever happen to you. right? Uh, and I'm like thinking, well, you're talking rubbish here. Yeah. Um, and he goes for two reasons. Um, the first reason he said was that if they if they can't see the talent you've got they're not the right people to coach you Yep. um and he said if you want to be a tennis player you've got to learn and deal with failure every single day because there's only one person that wins the tournament each week yeah uh, so you're gonna lose every week um so th- that I've never forgotten. And that's always the thing that's always spurred me on and sort of it, it was the best thing that happened to me. Yeah. Um, So it's, it was disappointment, but it was something that really helped me.
0: What a great story, honestly. And like, and what a wise dad that you've got. Like that's it. It's brilliant words. And I think, that that's and again there's so many common things coming through it's you know and we spoke to dan evans a few weeks ago and he talked about when he had coaches that didn't pick him or didn't said he wasn't good enough when he was 10 or 11 yeah. you know and 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 that michael jordan have you seen the michael jordan document yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. and he and he looks at, it, at nearly every match he's almost using that kind of bit to fire him up yeah um, somebody called them this or somebody looked at them in that way. That that shows the mind of real champions that you guys all have been because that would destroy some kids, you know, and, and then and maybe tennis isn't the sport for them because like like we both know, the knocks the knocks that we receive are much greater than the successes that we have, you know, so incredible. So then, because Barker's mentioned, because this was before, obviously I came to Bisham probably two or three years after you. Yeah. Barkers then said, Barkers came in and he, he kind of reversed the decision. How how soon how soon after was that? Was that? No,
1: it it, it, it was, another year. It was um, another year. Okay. So 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 what happened is yeah, it, uh, Barkers, Ian Barkley, he came in as the as the, as the new head coach. Okay. So um, the the head coaches at the time I can't I can't remember who they were. Yeah. Uh, and then Barkers came in and he was on a he was on a trip and i was on this trip with him and he's barker said to me well why didn't you come to Bisham?" and i said look i, I want to come more than more than anything but they turned me down he yeah. goes i want you in as soon as i can get you in okay so so i came a year later than i i, I probably could have done yeah um, but as i said it's it that that spurred yeah. me on yeah um, so i i came at 14 yeah, submission uh, and i was maybe probably number four or five in the country my age so yeah i wasn't top of the top um i was sort of close but yeah nowhere, nowhere near the, the sort of top two players that i could i could i've never 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 had beaten um and i came in at 14 and sort of just loved it from day one. Um, yeah. I was I was with players that um, wanted to be tennis players as well. Um, I was going from pro, maybe playing sort of 10 hours a week to sort of 20 hours a week. Um, yep. I had no problem leaving home and I probably only went home once every six weeks. I, I loved it so much ambition that I sort of never, and I only went home when they forced me to go home. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things, Marty, I want to
0: pick up on. I think there's a couple of really interesting points. First one is, how much did it mean to you on reflection and how influential on your career was it having a coach like Ian Barclay, who had been the, who had been the coach to Pat Cash, who had won Wimbledon only a few years previous, to kind of say, look, you're my man. I, I believe in you. You know what, and he did. And in, in my reflection, certainly looking back, he always had a massive belief in you. You know, and he he was amazing with us all. But but he, he absolutely believed in you as a tennis player. How much did that influence you in 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 a positive way? Um,
1: I think it was it was massive. But I I think it was um, the way Barker's was with with me. He. He never gave me praise, but I always knew when he was happy or not happy. Yeah. Because he was always trying to spur me on to, to to, get to the next level. So, and I remember the, the late Jackie, she she always used to say, come on, Ian, give him a compliment, give him a compliment. And Ian will, used to say, no, he hasn't done it yet. Yeah. He's got to get to the next level. There's always someone else he's got to beat. Um, So, as I said, I came in at 14, maybe five in the country. um, But then I just sort of went on this sort of run for the next four years, which I never looked back. I sort of, at at 15, I'd won the Nationals uh, under 16s. Uh, At 16, I'd made the final of the under 18 Nationals. At At 17, I was number three in the World Juniors. And at 18, I was number one. So, it was... It was something that I didn't when I went in there. I I, I wasn't expecting to be number one in the world in, in yeah, juniors, yeah. no nowhere near. Um, but it's just the environment and the the, the coaching and the just. Um, I was listening to one of the other podcasts and just the the competitiveness of all the boys was just. Just amazing because we we all wanted to win everything. So it didn't matter what drill we were doing, it didn't matter what session it was. We all wanted to win so badly, and that, and that's what you need, especially with the with with the boys, is yeah. they thrive on beating the others. Um, yeah. And we all knew that. Oh, if you were beating that person, that person was doing really well. So when you went to a tournament, you were going to do well.
0: Yeah, but you you were. You were like the big brother. You were the, when I was there, you were the oldest player. You were the best player. <laughs> you were, as you say, number number three in the world at 17, number one in the world at 18. I never thought it at the time, but now that I run an academy and I know how much people go on about who they practice with and wanting to practice with better yeah. players and wanting to do this, was that ever in your mind as the best player that you you wanted to practice
1: with better players no not at all we ian ian did it very well that we used to i used to go and play with edberg a few times uh in, in london and that was fantastic but it's and I ha- I get the same at my academy now the amount of parents that come to me and say look why am I not here with this person why not yep. and it, I just I just say it's it's not about who you're hitting with up the other end it's what you're doing your end yeah? and, and and the coaches will um, put you with the right people when it when it's the right time um, and uh, no it didn't bother me at all because I just look at it okay. Who, who does Federer play practice with? He's always going to practice with someone down. Yeah. Who who's Murray going to practice with? Yeah, it's very rarely that the top two players in the world will practice together. Um, really? So my I just love the the environment, and it, and it didn't matter who I was playing with.
2: Yeah. If
1: I was playing with someone that was worse than me, I'd just try and beat him six love. And yeah. you, you, and, and um, the players. We were practicing with everyone was good there, so it didn't it didn't really matter.
0: Yeah, but no, I think it's a. I just think it's a massive, massive point. I, I think it's, you know, you you in that environment as the best player, basically, you were the best player there for three, four years. Yet you made it to number one in the world in juniors, and then you made it to top hundred in the world in singles, and you know, and it's as as a little kind of piece, a little thirty second piece. almost to be able to send to every single parent and player in the world and exactly what you've just said then it's not about what happens at the other end of the court it's about what happens at your end of the court and I think it's amazing and 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 the compliment I would give you on that as someone who you were beating up on, I never felt that either. Do you know what I mean? I never felt the disrespect. I never felt you know, I just felt like, boy, he's, he's a blinking good tennis player, but, and, um, but I'm trying my very best, and you what you wanted to kick our backsides as well, and I think that's a, the biggest compliment I can give you as well as kind of someone who was in your, in your peer group at that time. The next thing, Marty, I'd love to kind of delve into, I, I share a little story, and I'm sure you remember this story. And I'm just, A couple of little stories. One, you being on the London Underground and finding a cheque, for like 20 pound for Mr. Emily. Yeah? Yeah. To playing pool against us all with one hand. And, and I genuinely have never, I'd never come across someone who had such a belief in themselves. And, and hearing you talk about it, it's like, it gives me goosebumps going back to you because you, were, you weren't looking back. You were just, you were in such a headspace of just, um, I'm lucky. That's what I do. I, I put myself out there. The amount of times I saw you hit second serve aces at like 150 mile an hour and it was like, what? It, it, there was no doubt in your mind you were going to do it. How did you pick that confidence up? And was there a time that that confidence got knocked?
1: Um, I think the confidence just came from, as I said, being at Bisham and with all the other boys, all the other lot and just everything was a competition and it's the thing is it's yet the harder you try the more you practice uh, in a way the luckier you're going to get but it's not luck it's just you're you're practicing more and you're believing and you you put yourselves in those situations yeah Um, for example the one-handed one-handed pull I just kept kept practicing playing one-handed, and I, and then I knew that I was quite good, and then with a little bit of pressure on the other side and a, and a few mind games, it not, it normally works.
0: But also, I'm a big believer of law of attraction, because I think the other good thing that you were really good at, and I think this is a message for players out there, when you lost, you forgot about it quite quick. So, that, so, so there might have been... So, like, you almost... When I say about law of attraction, you you oozed off that, you know, everyone called Lucky Martin, he saw so Lucky Martin, he does this, this happens to Martin. But again, it wasn't luck, it was just you had such a positive outlook on everything that, that positive things seemed to attract themselves to you. And, and I guess the point I'm trying to get to, and it might be moving forward a little bit further on in your career, was there a time when that happy-go-lucky way of being kind of ran out or, or you started overthinking things or or have you been able to maintain that throughout your playing and coaching and the whole way through?
1: No, I think I I think I really struggled when I was probably nineteen, um nineteen to twenty-one. Okay. I think it, it coincide coincided with um Bishop closing down as the national turni- uh, national tennis school yep. um, and sort of Barker's being sort of moved on to a different area so I couldn't work with with him anymore yep. um, I sort of went decided to sort of James Turner was one of the other coaches who um, was, was fantastic with me and he, uh, he had sort of, he'd been moved on to sort of Bath by the LTA so yeah. I decided up, up roots and go, and go and sort of live in live in Bath and and train in Bath, yeah. um, which, which was okay. It, it it wasn't it wasn't like Bisham, but it it, it was the the next best option at, at, at that time. Yeah. Uh, but then that only probably lasted another year and a half, and then he got moved on to sort of Leeds. um yeah. and I wasn't going to go up to Leeds, so um, it's. <laughs> It, that, that was a sort of difficult stage for me. Um, I loved my base at Bisham and, and and that was my sort of home. So leaving my home um, w- what was difficult. My ranking was still okay. I was probably 200, 250 in the world. So I sort of still progressed um, with my ranking, but I think my confidence um, and then I had a few injuries and I think it's sort of, I did struggle for a couple of years at, at that sort of stage. And do you think that
0: do you think that slowed the process down to to getting to being top hundred in the world?
1: Um, I don't know. I, th- I think not just with me, with 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 a lot of the boys uh, at at Bisham. I think if if Barkers and Jimmy T and, and and Phil had been given another sort of four or five years, I think we would have seen. Uh, a lot better results in the seniors with 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 all of us. Um, I I just feel that, that there was always a stigma that um, oh we had, we had good juniors but we couldn't produce it in the seniors. But I don't, I don't think Barker's was given a chance. Uh, yeah. With with the crop of sort of eight nine ten ten players that are, were all sort of top ten in the world junior
2: to, yeah.
0: to
1: to try and sort of deliver it in the seniors as well.
2: Yeah.
0: And what's, what's the reality of the transition? So you're world junior number one. Um, I remember it well, you know, and, and it's incredible. I, rem- I actually remember, before we talk about the transition, I remember you playing Grosjean in the final of Roehampton. Yeah. You guys were one and two at the time. Um, and you were, for me, you were at your absolute height then at a peak. You were playing some serious ball. What What's your memories of those kind of junior, junior years of, of making it to
1: number one in the world uh well i think my it, it was it, those sort of last two years when i was 17 and i was 18 and i was yeah number three in the world and number one to me <laughs> they were fantastic you 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 were at the top of the mountain every, every tournament you went to you got special treatment everyone was there trying to beat you everyone knew you so it was a great part of my career and i was doing really really well so most tournaments i was getting minimum semi-final and final so um, when you're winning everything's rosy it's it's a great life and it's, it's the same at any level if you're winning you're going to be happy if you're losing you're not happy
0: yeah no absolutely absolutely and what do you what would you say on. I know that some people don't particularly like juniors, junior ITF. I'm a big, big fan of it, and I think if you have success in junior ITFs, I think it helps with the feeling of belonging on the tour, and you know it leads to lots of other things. What's your What's your reflection on the importance of that now that
1: you're a coach? Um, I I agree. Yeah, I think you've got to you've got to try and go through all the levels. Yeah, I think. It's very difficult to to miss out a level. Some some players do, but it, it's very few. And yeah. you look at all the top top players. Most of them have done had a, had great success in in junior tennis. Yeah. It may only be for a, a sort of a year um, or two. But Federer, you see you see all of them. They, they've done well in juniors. Um, and for me, it was. Um, I remember the first few tournaments uh, I, I went when I was sort of 13 years old and my first international tournaments, I was struggling for games. I was losing 6-1, 6-1. Yeah. But I, I just had that belief that I would try my hardest and next time I'd get a better score and then next time I'd get a better score and then two, three years down the line, the, the guys I was losing two six one six one 6 one 6-1, I was beating 6-1, 6-1. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the hardest thing in in tennis is that can you can you come back the next day um, and train hard when you've played awful and you and you've lost and you're lost and you've lost and you've lost um, and, and you, you you made a point on it I I could forget about losses very quickly mm. uh, and I knew I was when I was young I probably up until the age of 20, I hated losing so much. I would, match, I would smash 40, 50 rackets a year, but I could forget about it. And then the next day I'll be fine. Or five minutes later after but I smashed all my rackets, I'd just forget about it. And I, I'm on to the what I've got to do next. And that's, that, that, that's, I think, that's a very good trait of mine. And I, I see a lot of players that, they come out for practice the next day they've had a bad result and they're still in the mood and, they, and they're not they're not trying 100% the next day why do you think you had that um probably from my from my dad from that conversation when i was 13 years old because um, that's the, everything i always came back to that because it didn't matter it didn't matter about if you if you're lost and i, I remember um when i uh, moving forward a bit with the the, the year i- became, uh, got top one hundred, I think I lost my first eight matches of the year
2: yeah,
1: yeah i I really struggled and I was losing seven six in the third um on on numerous occasions and but it turned out to be my best year
0: yeah and it's and it's the reality of our sport and I think what an absolute gem of a message to you guys listening. That is, you know, the, ma- the ability to have resilience, the ability to manage disappointment, you know, is absolutely one of the, one of the biggest attributes that you can have. You know, we're in a sport where you lose a lot. You were in a sport on a micro level of points and, or on a macro level of, of, of matches. So I, I just, I want people to kind of just take a moment and, and take that on board, Mark. Cause I think it's a, It's an unbelievable point. Um, We've talked about that we went back into the juniors and we've talked about how obviously you've been world number one as a junior. Do you think that helped your transition? Because there's a lot made of transition from junior to senior. And I guess there's two ways of looking at it. We can always look at things in two ways. World number one going in maybe has got it a little bit easier because there's opportunities, there's sponsorships, there's confidence, there's belief. But on the other hand, I guess there's also a certain pressure that comes with being a world junior number one going into the seniors. Um, how, was, how did that fall for you?
1: Um, as, I, as I mentioned before, I think the big thing is I didn't have st- stability with yeah. my training base. Um, as I said my ranking was still going going up and it was still uh, probably at 16 17 I was probably 600 in the world so I, I, I'd sort of made made an inroad even at 16 uh, to, to, to get ranking I remember the first year out of juniors I played uh, played Queen's club and I I, I, I won. Won two matches there. I beat a guy called oh- Ohovsky uh, and I was six, I was I was six love, uh, one love down. Uh, and I won the match. Uh, then I beat a guy called Alex O'Brien, second round, who was 22 in the world. And then I lost to Goran Izavinovich uh, on centre court when he was three in the world, I think, six, six, one, seven, five or something. So it, it I'd still, I was still getting decent results. Um, but in my head, I thought I would make top hundred at twenty five years old, um, just because that—that's what how long I thought it would take to to, to make it. Um, I made it when I was twenty four, so because um, I, I I still probably wasn't as mature uh, as as I could have been, um, and. Uh, but as I said, if, if I, I would, when you're growing up, when you're ten years old, eleven years old, you're not thinking about being number one in the world. The, the sort of holy grail was to try and be top hundred in the world.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and that, from the age of 15, 16, sixteen, I'd sort of given myself, okay, I want to try and do it by twenty-five.
2: Yeah.
1: So, in a way, I, I, I made it a year earlier than. Yeah my goals
0: were did you did you absolutely believe you were going to be a top 100 tennis
1: player in the world um i i think probably once i got to number one in the world juniors number three in the world there was always some statistics out that if you made top 10 in the world junior you uh you had a 50 50 chance of making top top 100 there would only ever been one person that had made top uh, number one in the world junior and not made top 100 um, in the seniors so the odds were good but as we know' it, it's, it's not easy because <clears throat> there is a there's a there's hundred players in the top 100 but probably only 10 to 15 players move out of that top 100 each year. Yeah. So there's not many spots because there's a lot of players that will stay in there for 10, 10 12 years. Um, Absolutely. They're not going to give their spot up.
0: Absolutely. And there's, there's lots of different things I want to go into on this before I also want to move into your coaching. I think these are things I've probably never had a chance to ask you, as you know, before. So it's game style. If somebody said to me, what was Martin Lee's game style? I wouldn't always have known. I would have said it changed a little bit. Would that be fair?
1: Uh, I wouldn't even know my game style. So, yeah. Um, just just because I adapted my game style to how I was feeling. or um, I had a very good tennis brain. Um, and I would play a game. Not... Not to look good or to pleasing on the eye, but I would play a game that would make my opponent not feel comfortable. Yeah. Uh, And I think that that really sort of helped me because no one really knew what I was going to do, so no one could really plan to see what they'd do when they played me.
0: And, but on reflection now, now that you've got your coach's eye more and more, and you've worked with a lot of players, do you think there was a certain style and identity that you had that worked that, that worked the best?
1: Um, I think it's difficult, uh, difficult to say because uh, we played a lot on clay um, when we were young, and that really helped all aspects of my game. Yeah. Um, but you've got to play different on a clay court to y- you do on a hard court and a grass court. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, ju- it's just about, for example, the, the year I made top 100, um, what me and my coach uh, at the time, Dave Samuel uh, decided that every second serve, mm-hmm. I was going to hit and come in. Yeah. So we did we did that for a year, um, and no one had seen that really. No one. There were there was a few players, Pat Rafter and, and sort of Tim Hemmert, a little bit would would come in behind a, a second serve, but mainly with a chip. I yeah. was hitting them, um, and that really really worked for a year because a lot of players didn't like it because they hadn't seen it before.
0: Yeah, and I think that was that was probably the point I was almost i was going around the houses on because that was my memory that was my memory of you you know that year that that you were you were really i mean you were a great athlete you moved fantastically well but you started to really use that athletic ability in a proactive way yeah and that that definitely came through my my next question why didn't you get higher
1: um i think undoubtedly it, it was my injuries yeah um, i i believed i probably i had the talent and the and the ability to probably be top 20 in the world um if i look at the players that did make very high up that i was beating at juniors um uh, i i had my i think i had my first operation at 19 um, and then i had three operations within five years wow. um, and. For example, the year I made top 100, um, I hardly practiced for a whole year and still was in the top 100 because um, I had two groin operations and one knee operation. Right, okay. And the knee operation was the, the real big one. Um, that that started, I just had a, a bump on the top of my knee. Um, I was just about to go and play quarter-finals of the Nottingham Tour event against Greg Rosetsky uh, and I was warming up on the bike and there was a lump on my knee and I was thinking oh, that's, what, what's that um, and I played the match and it was just really sore um, and I had to play for a year on painkillers um, as I said I had to strap it up I couldn't practice um, I remember my my best results was I made the final of a tour event in not uh, in Newport in Rhode Island in in America, um, and I I'd, I'd lost ten days before second round Wimbledon to Tim Henman Centre Courts. I hadn't hit one ball for ten days before I went out there. Um, my coach didn't come with me because we thought it well it, it wasn't looking good. I didn't even know if I was going to play. Um, I took one of my friends out, called Danny, um, who didn't know even how to score tennis. But loves Millwall. Love you, love Millwall. <laughs> and he, so Danny, uh, I'll never forget it. So we, I, I had a 30-minute hit when I was out there, and Danny came off. Uh, I came off the court, and the knee knee was okay, but still really sore. Um, the sort of painkillers would last about two hours, and then it. Yep. then they wouldn't they would just wear off and Danny said to me if you play like that Martin you're gonna win the tournament uh, and so I won my first round I won my second round I, I got to the quarterfinal I won my quarterfinal and had to play James Blake that's right um, at, at the time he was he was probably 50 in the world but he was up and coming and he made I think three in the world so he was the next uh, American hope um, and we were playing at a packed sort of eight eight thousand crowd, and uh, I, I managed to beat him. I think seven five or seven six in the third set, uh, but my knee was just absolutely just throbbing. I just couldn't, could hardly walk. Uh, the physio said, "Look, you, can, Martin, you can't even play tomorrow." And yeah. um, if it wasn't the final, I, I would, I would not have played. But I lost in the final to Neville Godwin. But that was my best uh, best result. Um, the final of the tour event, and that moved me from about 130 to 103. Okay, and the cutoff for US Open was that Monday. So, normally, if you're around 100, 103, 104, you're getting US Open, <laughs> and that sort of gave gave me a main draw for US Open as well. So, and, and what was the great match, memory? Absolutely, and what was the match that took you into the top 100? Well, it actually took me um, another seven months to get top 100. Wow. Um, the reason was um, mainly because I couldn't play that many tournaments because of my knee, yeah. but also I was defending quite a lot of points. So um, I I lost the first round US Open to Shen Schalken, who was a Dutch guy who I think he was the number 18th seed. I lost to him 6-3 six, six, in the fifth. Um, that was a big match that I I really thought I could win. And um, I was coming in, as I mentioned, I was coming in off every second serve. Yeah. And what his his coach told him in the fifth, set, he said, look, if you keep doing this, you're going to lose. So his, co- his coach told him at the back of the court, he's got to start serve volleying to stop me coming in. Mm-hmm. And, and that made the difference. Um, but ironically, um, i my match to make top hundred was February in Rotterdam, so I qualified in Rotterdam, and I had to play Shen shao first round in Rotterdam. Wow. So that was his home home country. so we had the night match, ten thousand people, um, and I beat him seven, six, seven six, and I won both tie breaks seven love. <laughs> uh, and i've still got the record now no one's no one's ever won uh a match where we're winning both tiebreaks seven love in a is court that round. right Is that right? so i won that match uh but my knee was still really bad um and ironically i had to second round i had to play grosjean again right okay uh and he was two and three in the world i think yeah. and but my knee was my knees were gone uh, so I think I lost six two six one or something, but that that was the match to, to get me top
0: hundred. And this, because Topper, it's, it's the holy grail. It's the holy grail of tennis, rightly or wrongly, rightly or wrongly. And I think there's there's obviously some positive sides to that, and because it's such an amazing achievement. But there's also some negative sides to it that it kind of takes over people's minds almost so much. How how did you feel when you were when you'd won that match?
1: Uh, I think it was a massive relief because I'd waited seven months to to get there. I got to 103 and I was three spots off.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: and it just took so long when I was so close. Yes. And there were so many matches that I was lost seven five and a the third. Uh, there was, a, but when you're on the tour and I, I I didn't go down a level. I was only playing tour events. Matches. I wasn't playing where some players will go down and play some challenges and stuff. I was just playing tour events. Yeah. So I was playing guys twenty in the world. Um, so um, it, w- it was it was it was it was just a relief because it had taken so long when I was so close.
0: And just for those listening, in terms of the points defending that Martin mentioned, cut two or three minutes ago, tennis tennis is a twelve month rolling ranking. You know, so if you've in the June of two thousand and nineteen have won a tournament, in June two thousand and twenty, those points actually come off your ranking. So if you were to make final of that tournament in two thousand and twenty, your ranking would actually go down. You know, and I think that's you know obviously in the tennis world that's something that we know. And actually, on that point, because I think a lot of players, so a lot of players I've worked with, their first year on the tour. I've worked with a few players now that have actually gone up the rankings really quite fast in that first year. And it's that like feeling of every match you win, your rankings going. And it's quite a nice feeling as a coach as well. It's like, wow, they, they were 800, they're now 600. You know, they were 600. And you know I've actually had a player that's gone from 0 to 270 or 280. And another one that's gone 0 to 310. What is it like defending points? And, and, and is that another thing that you've got to get your head around when you're transitioning
1: into, into the senior game? Yeah, exactly. As you said there, Dan, the first year there's no pressure on you. You've got no points to defend.
2: Yeah.
1: And then you come to the, the second year. And, for example, with me, I've, I've done really well. I've made the second round Wimbledon. I've made the final in Newport. I've done a, a couple of other things. So I, I was probably defending two two hundred points w- within a within a four week period. Yeah. Um. So it comes to the year later. Uh, as I said, my knee. I I know I've got to have a knee operation. Yeah. And I just I'm sort of delaying it, and delaying it because I'm still top hundred. Yeah, yeah. So the year later, um, I draw. Um, I went to Holland. To play the grass court tournaments, and I had uh, Tommy Robredo first round. Yeah, um, I, I lost to him six six four in the third. Um, then I I had Philippoussis first round Queens. Yeah, which I I think I lost uh, a, t- a tie break in one set. And then I drew Pete Sampras first round Wimbledon. So you, you've gone from could have got some good draws to uh, uh, not not winning a match,
2: yeah. um,
1: and then I had to defend uh, a final in Newport, and I drew Wayne Arthur's first round Newport, who just made final Wimbledon. Yeah, um, and I managed to beat uh, Wayne Arthur's and make the quarters again, but it, it was it, and that's where, as you said, Dan, it's very. I always it's I always try and with, with players I try and it's it's much better if they can try and spread their points out over the year.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
1: not just have a good six week period because there's a lot of pressure when it comes around to those six weeks again.
0: No, no, absolutely Marty, absolutely. And and the other thing is people think you you top 100 in the world you must be made for life financially. What's the realities of that?
1: Um, no, definitely not. I think the, the difficult thing, I think nowadays, um, the, the money's gone up, up tenfold. So I think if I was top 100 in, in this day and age, I'd be earning a lot more money. Um, yeah. I think for example, the years I played Wimbledon, because I'm 42 now, so it's sort of 20 years ago, um, first round prize money was about £6,000 yeah now, now it's 45000 pounds um uh, and the reality was I I, I had a a coach uh, a lot of the time I had to pay 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 from pay my own way with my coach coaching and uh, and everything so um it was difficult because I, I was in an era with sort of Tim Hemman and Greg Rosetsky. so they were getting all the sponsorship I had some small sponsors but not not nowhere near like the top players were getting
0: yeah, and, and, and on that point, six. That just some kind of quick maths, I suppose, in the head, 6,000 to 40,000, you know, we're talking about kind of seven times pretty much the amount. Back in your day, my day, when we were playing, you win a futures, you win 1,000 euros. Fast forward 20 years, you still win 1,000 euros. So at the high level, it's gone up seven times. At the lower level, it hasn't gone up at all. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I, I I think it, it, it's difficult. I, I think the thing is, that, yeah, the prize money at that lower level hasn't hasn't gone up, gone up at all. And it's probably costing a lot more to travel these days. When I was playing, I, I always knew that I had to make probably about £35,000 to break even with, a, with all my travel. Um, and that's without a coach uh, travelling with me. So it's, it's probably about
0: fifty thousand pounds now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. It, it, it's going to be. I think obviously this time period there's been a lot of talk about it. There's been some high-profile players speaking out on it. I I definitely would never argue the case that it shouldn't go up. Of course, absolutely we want the prize money to go up, and we want more people in the tennis ecosystem playing and and making money from the sport. But I'm also a big believer in supply and demand, and and it's where does the money come from? <laughs> it's not, and this is one of the things about tennis. It's not like just an unlimited pot where somebody's just producing this money that's going to you know come, you know. And at the higher level, obviously, there's the television money, there's the ticket sales, there's the merchandise, there's all of these different things that are bringing so much money into the game into for those top level players because the demand is there you know so it's 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 how it's how they look at it because i just don't know we're in that business and we've we've we're working with young professionals from their first atp and wta points through to 300 in the world before maybe they are going to start making some money and we've seen so many of them but how how much longer can can players continue at that level without without being able to, to without being able to make to make a living?
1: I th- I think the only thing is now that for example at least there's I know there's there's more money for the for the top players but for example uh, Wimbledon qualifying.
2: Yeah,
1: I think I played one year when I was 15, 16. I think I got about eight hundred pounds for losing first round. Now yeah. it's about ten thousand pounds. So if if you can get around three hundred in the world, you, you can earn a, a sort of decent living if you can get into those Grand Slam qualifying.
0: If you're British, if you're, I mean, you you have to be you have to be two twenty, 220, two twenty five in the world to get yeah. in, to get into the Grand Slam qualies. If you're British then obviously if you're around 300 you're probably going to get a wild card into Wimbledon
1: qualifying. Yeah I think the thing is I remember I, I went over to Australian Open for the qualifying I got $700 or whatever for losing first round quality so it's but at least there's giving you sort of know yeah it may be 250, 240, 230 and you've got a chance of getting in at least you know Whereas in my day, even if you're, you're 220 in the world or well, 180, you're not making a living at all. Yeah. Um, so I think it's helped that bit. But yeah, I think they've got to try and help and put the prize money up a bit, up, up more in that futures, futures level to give the, give the guys a chance, really. Yeah, because it, what ends up happening, and I think you're
0: absolutely right, I think they've moved it probably... Maybe 15 years ago, you had to be 150. I would argue maybe now, if you are a Grand Slam level, qualies level player, you're making a living from the sport. But it does rely on academies like ourselves, and I don't know your personal circumstances, or do I want you talking about that on the podcast, but for us to end up almost sponsoring players and giving our time up and, and, you know, I mean, I go on, and again, certainly a reflection of mine, I mean, I've probably traveled close to 20 weeks a year, the last five, six years. And it's not with players that are really paying money, you know, it's because of, it's because of the love of the sport. It's because of just being kind of completely dedicated to wanting to help people, you know, and I think, you know, I don't proclaim that I'm any any better than hundreds and thousands of other coaches that are doing that globally. But I'm not sure that's fair, <laughs> that, that we should be in that position. And without without individuals and academies like ourselves doing that, these players are high and dry, really, because they don't have practice facilities. They don't have practice partners. They don't have coach support. You know, they're out there on their own. You know, I certainly don't have the answer for it. Um, but I, But I do think it's an area that... That I would love to see our sport develop. And I know there's people that have talked about maybe having certain salaries at certain rankings, you know, certain things, and maybe you got the salary, and then you know, maybe they're then able to afford to pay their academy fees or their coach fees to have the coach for a certain amount of time. You know, I don't know if there is a way of structuring it like that. Um, but I think it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic.
1: Um why did you stop? Um just injuries, um, it's my, uh, I mentioned it, my 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 lump on my knee, I went to see a specialist after about a sort of a year, a year and a bit, being top 100, and um, the special, what it was, it was a bone spur on top of the kneecap, and what it was doing, it was pushing on a patella tendon, and it was just, you know, I had to go and see the specialist, because all the anti uh, anti inflammatories I was taking, just the body wasn't uh, taking anything, and it it was just uh, it was just too painful. I could hardly hop, and uh, mm-hmm. I hadn't, as I said, I hadn't practiced properly for a year. Um, so they said it needs to be operated, and they and they gave me a fifty fifty chance that I'd play tennis again. It was something very rare that sort of came out of the blue. Yeah. Um, so I had it operated on um I was in on on crutches for sixteen weeks um and then uh it took me another six months to even get back on the tennis court right. um, I managed to get back and just um i had a protected ranking um so you sort of for for people that don't know if, if you are out injured for for I think over, over six months you, you can get a protected ranking which is sort of three quarters of what your ranking was when you stopped yeah. so I had a protected ranking of about 130 um, but when I came back um, I was compensating on my other leg and then uh, I did my groin again uh, and then that needed to be operated on after three months of me trying to get back to, to full fitness, um, and then in in that time, because I'd activated my protected ranking, um, I'd lost that protected ranking after I came back, sort of six months after my groin operation. Okay. So I had to start again from the bottom with with no ranking um, and yeah. start at the lowest lowest tournaments again. Yeah. Um, I was twenty seven years old at the. Or 26 and a half at that at that stage, uh, but I wanted to give it a go. Um, I managed to get back up to 200. Uh, I got wild card into Wimbledon. I won my first round Wimbledon, um, so I got back to a, de- a, a decent level. But I knew my body wasn't going to be able to put the work in. I I knew I needed to do to get back up.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and how How did you deal with that mentally? Because I guess it's one thing to have an injury or have a couple of injuries when you're six, seven hundred in the world. And actually, in reality, maybe, you know, deep down, you're not good enough. But but listening to the story, you got inside top hundred whilst kind of the injuries were starting to come, but you didn't really ever get a chance to play a fit again. Whilst you'd done all of that work for so many years to get yourself to this holy grail, this point that so few tennis players get to, how how were you able to accept that, and how did how did you deal with that mentally over the coming years?
1: Um, I, I think I struggled sometimes, and but I always had that belief that okay, everyone gets injured. Um, I was unlucky that I had three three operation in five years and, and that's in my heart of heart that's the thing that stopped me getting to the next level yeah um, and i i just had to deal with it and it, and it in the end i i looked back at my career and i thought okay at 14 years old would i've taken the career i've had yeah uh, of course i would so that's the way i look at it um, yeah. of course i made mistakes and i I could have done things differently maybe better but overall as i said if i look back at it and and you mentioned at the start there's only been seven eight players in the last 25 years that have made top 100 absolutely in in, in this country so um i had no regrets of of what uh, what i did really
0: yeah yeah no absolutely no it's, it's incredible seven seven or eight male players in in 25 years you know you you were one of them you've had had an incredible journey if you would go back to you being 18 years old is there any advice that you would give yourself now
1: um i i i think that when you go into coaching you you learn so much more and you There's lots of things I would do differently um, because I'm more knowledgeable now uh, and I I know the mistakes that I I made. But the thing is, at 18, 19, you won't know those mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Because you you, you have to, I'm a great believer, you've got to, you can't tell them, especially at 17, 18, 19, uh, with the boys, they think they know it all and, and you, it doesn't matter what you say. You've got to, in a way, let them fail uh, and then they come out the other side and think the ones that will make it will probably only make that mistake once or twice yeah. uh, and then move on. Um, the ones that don't make it, are the ones that keep making the same mistake and, and not learning from it. So, yeah, there's thousands of things I would have would have learned and, and done differently but at the time I wouldn't have done it
0: that's a good answer. it's a really good answer. so you've touched on it there you you then have moved into being a coach did that did that transition from playing to coaching happen quite quick and did you always know that that was the route that you wanted to go after you played
1: yeah i was always going to go down the route of coaching um uh, just because it, it, it it's been my dad's life and 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 that's what i uh was going to do or give it a go. The the last year of my uh, when I had my last operation, I didn't know how I was gonna sort of how long I was gonna play for. So I I was preparing for that. So when I was injured and I couldn't play tennis, I I did my most of my co- uh, coaching qualifications then. Um, so I. I once i retired i could sort of go straight into coaching because i I had done the qualifications um when i retired i actually sort of did about three or four months as a sports agent to see what that was like and then i sort of didn't really want to be putting on a suit every day Um, and uh, yeah then then i went into sort of coaching uh there was a Company at Bisham um, called Win Tennis, who I went and started coaching, coaching for them and sort of running their, um, starting their academy. We started with sort of only sort of four or five players, um, and I was there for five years and we we had a lot of success. We had I worked with Johanna Konta for about a year and a half uh, when she was sort of 15, 16, and travelled the world with her. Uh, Kyle Edmund was at Uh, fishing with us for sort of four years from the age of 12 to 16 um, and helped him out and sort of harriet dart as well Uh, so i did sort of had a lot of success there and i sort of but my dad helped me with that as well and he when i started coaching i didn't just start doing performance kids I, i coached coached a lot of different A lot of mini tennis, a lot of adults and my dad said you've got to get that variety because that will help your your all-round coaching moving forward so I did that for sort of three or four years as well Um, and and then after five years there I decided I wanted to try and start something on my own um, sort of a company that I could control Um, So as you mentioned at the start, I sort of started the company with uh, with Paul Delgado, uh, who's one of my sort of best friends. um, And we started the company with no, I left Bisham, we had no one to coach, no venues, um, and just sort of got some park courts and a few small clubs and started programs and started coaching from there. Um, And then we... uh, the old company at Bisham left, and the, it came up for tender, and we had a six-month process, uh, tender process to to try and win the, the contract at Bisham and, and and living tennis one that um, six years ago, and we've been there six years and sort of grown steadily. Um, we sort of renamed it sort of Delgado and Lee Academy um, at Bisham, sort of four years ago now.
0: No, very good. I don't know if I've ever spoken about this, Marty, but we went in that same process actually that tender yeah. process so so we were we were approached it doesn't matter who we were approached by but we were approached to go in and i couldn't believe the detail of this the, the process it was a yeah. massive process and we what, we went through two or three of the stages and when it got to one of the stages i think they shared answers maybe from the other yeah. people in the stages and It just became so clear to me that it was perfect for you guys you know it just it it, because and because you guys know the area so well you you know obviously Paul had all of the links with the schools you know the whole for the whole business model you know at that stage we actually stepped back from it and and it I, I didn't know officially that you guys were in for it but it in my head, I was thinking to myself, "This this is absolutely perfect for you guys." Um, and how's how's that? Again, I I can imagine not not easy, you know, not easy because these things aren't easy. And um, but how how's that process been for of setting up a business and you know being your own bosses and you know the difficulties that come with that that people don't really know unless they have their own business, really.
1: Um, what well, it was very very hard. Um, the it's you're always going into the unknown it's sort of we and that that tender process really helped us a lot but it was as you said it was a lot of hard work it was you didn't know who else was in for it you didn't know how much to bid for it it was it was it was very tricky but as you said we we thought we had a great chance because we had the whole the local area um and for the first three, four years, me and Paul were doing everything. We couldn't afford to pay for anyone else to do it. We, we, we're more established now and we, we've got a lot of a lot of people working for us. Um, so we can sort of delegate a bit more. But as you said, the first few years, we, we were doing everything, working seven days a week.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what, moving into your coaching, you know, what's what are your coaching philosophies after everything that you've been through in tennis
1: i think my my coaching philosophy i i I just look at all the coaches that i've worked with and and take little bits from 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 each of them really i think as you said as i said with barkers he was fantastic everything um i believe he 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 was the, the the best coach in the world at the time and and and, and t- we were so lucky to have him uh, yeah. because um, he made the game fun. He made he made hard work really easy because it was fun. Yeah,
2: um,
1: and that's the hardest thing is a lot of players struggle to 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 commit each day because it does get boring. There's there's no special drills in tennis. There's a, you've just got to sort of paint paint a better picture of a drill just to try and get someone excited, and, and that's what Barker's did. It didn't matter if you were if you were hitting 200 slice slice backhands, he would make it interesting somehow. I don't know yeah. how he did it, but he, he just made it interesting. You'd want to be on the court and. And the time would fly by, um, whereas sometimes you sort of you see other people. Oh my God, the, the sessions really struggle sometimes.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and but my philosophy is, I've just seen too many coaches make the game too complicated. Yeah. This game This game is very simple, and that's what Barker's did. You know, they're, they're, all he said, never hit the net. Yeah. You just had. You had four or five points that you just sort of would would stick to, and you would. You're on break point. You knew what to do. You knew what to do because you, Barker wouldn't need to say anything because he told you a million times. This is what you do. Do not miss a return on break point. The simple things. Make a make a first serve. Just simple things. And I think too many coaches complicate the game. Yeah. And, and usually, if someone. If a coach is talking too much, I don't. That's when I I would switch off, yeah. um, because you can't take too much information in. Yeah. Barker's team or team talk after a match, it would be two three minutes because he would have two or f- two or three points maximum yeah. that you needed to take into your next match. Yeah, uh, and that's my philosophy: is that you you've got to make your point, but you've got to make it simple, and you just You work on those points uh, until it's until it's done, and then you move on to the next one.
0: Love it, really good, Marty. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that there. I'm gonna go for a quick fire, which has become our tradition uh, to finish the podcast. Um, Rapid, it's rapid, so get ready. Um, ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. Injury timeout or not? No. Would you prefer Wh- Millwall to win the Premier League or England to win the World Cup?
1: Millwall to win the Premier League.
0: <laughs> serve, serve or return? Return. Warm up before a match on the court or not? Five minute warm up.
1: Uh, yes.
0: Rafa or Roger. Roger. Will Andy Murray win another Grand Slam?
1: I think doubtful
0: now. Should the US Open go ahead or not in a few weeks?
1: Yeah, yes.
0: And if there was one rule that you would change in tennis?
2: it's
1: a difficult one. I think I'm stuck with that one.
0: You should have listened to the other podcast, Marty, and know that this one was coming. Hey. I
1: didn't listen to the other podcast. Um, I
0: can't think of one. So tennis is perfect. We're not going to change it. Martin Lee, you've been a star. Honestly, for personally, fantastic catching up with you. Um, obviously, I know a lot of your story, but to get the the depths of the of insight that you've given today has been amazing to sit and chat to you on. And I, and I know everyone will love to listen to it as well. So a big, big thank you. Cheers, guys. A big thank you, Martin Lee, for that fantastic podcast, fantastic insights. I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as I did doing it. Uh, A short and sweet one from me at the end of this podcast, just to say a big thank you to you all and let you know that next week we have next episode Donald Young and also Paul Casey coming up next. And then the following week we have Mental Health Awareness Week with some great guests including Noah Rubin, Liam Brodie and others who are talking through their stories. It's gonna be great. Keep spreading the word. Have a fantastic day wherever you are.